Second Kings chapter number six. Second Kings chapter number six. Our text this morning is fairly lengthy. I've tried to reduce it a little bit here this morning for sake of time. But I want I believe it's important that we get the entire picture of what's going on here, because not just what I have to say here this morning, there is so much about this message that I believe is at least somewhat relevant to where we're at today, but certainly it is my opinion and conviction that we're going to find this story more and more relevant in the days to come. Second Kings chapter number 6, would you stand with me in honor of the Word of God this morning? Beginning in verse number 24, I'll do my best to limit my commentary. There are so many verses that are worthy of commentary as we go along, but I'll do my best to limit that. And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, Whence shall I help thee, out of the barn floor or out of the winepress? And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? She answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. It came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes and he passed by upon the wall and the people looked. Behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so and more also to me if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. But Elisha sat in his house and the elder sat with him and the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See ye how this son of a murderer hath sent to take away mine head? Now, this is Jehoram, the son of Ahab, by the way. He says, Look when the messenger cometh, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him, and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? Chapter 7, verse number 1, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a Lord, on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it. This is Elisha speaking to this skeptic, uh, this uh, confidant of the king. He said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. There were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? 
If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine in the city, and uh, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now, therefore, come and let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And they rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. When these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, They went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Then they said one to another, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. And from verse 10 down through verse number 16, we see that story unfold of how they came and made it known to the king and so forth. Now look with me at verse 16. And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have the charge of the gate and the people trod upon him. This is a mob going out to get some food and bringing it back in and they trod upon him in the gate and he died as the man of God had said who spake when the king came down to him. It came to pass as the man of God had spoken to the king saying two measures of barley for a shekel and A measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died." So here's a man that's the king's confidant, and he's in a place of position and place of authority, place of influence, and he ends up dead. And four leprous men that had no hope whatsoever, they end up alive and prosperous. And I want to preach this morning on what have you got to lose? Father, bless your word. Thank you for it. Thank you for this story. We pray that you would use this message uh, to accomplish your will and purpose in our lives. Uh, Exhort us and encourage us, motivate us, and above all, convict our hearts and help us to follow your word and your truth. Help us to learn how to serve you and walk with you even in some interesting days in which we live. We pray for your blessings now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. C.H. Spurgeon said this, If you were to take out of the scriptures all the stories that 
have to do with poor, afflicted men and women, what a very small book the Bible would become, especially if together with the stories you removed all the psalms of the sorrowful, all the promises for the distressed, and all the passages which belong to the children of grief. This book indeed, for the most part, is made up of annals of the poor and despised. Did you notice that when things go awry, when things end up in destitute, that often God or God's man is blamed? We read about that in verse number 31. The king said that if tomorrow, I mean, he's going after the man of God, Elisha, and it's so common to blame God. And You know, if you were to read the previous chapter, you would find that maybe the king had justification because the Syrians had come and they had besieged the city of Samaria. And it says previously that God miraculously delivered Israel from the host of Syrians. And if you'll recall, Elisha said, open up his eyes so that he can see, and God revealed all these chariots of fire and so forth, and uh, God allowed uh, Elisha and all of the men with him to capture all of those Syrians because God had struck them with blindness, and they gathered them, and they said, should we, should we slay them? And Elisha said, no, don't kill them. God did this, and he says, feed them some breakfast and then let them go home. Uh, If you look at verse 31 of chapter number 6, it it says clearly here, it says, uh, excuse me, not verse 31, but verse number uh, 23, it says at the end of the verse, so the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Of course, verse 24 says they come and besiege. What we find here is that all of these soldiers that Elisha released, they didn't come back against Samaria but evidently, King Ben-Hadad of Syria, he had some new recruits. And so all of the soldiers that Elisha turned loose were not the ones that were causing the king's problem. Perhaps maybe he thought that it was. And oftentimes, men of God and the message of God gets understood, misunderstood, I should say. It's not always easy to be in that position of representing God and His truth. It's like the javelin thrower that lost the coin toss and elected to receive. (laughs) It's kind of the way it is sometimes. Or the army bugler that needed a friend to vouch for him so that he could cash a check. Well, the bugler is the one that wakes everybody up at four in the morning to go on a march. He doesn't have any friends. (laughs) Sometimes the man of God is God's bugler. He's necessary, but not always the most popular Uh, popular person in the room. As we've read this story, the first point I want to bring out is this, that maybe things aren't as bad as we think. I read about some Boy Scouts from, they were city, city kids and they went on their first camping trip and they were literally getting eat up with mosquitoes. And they'd never experienced that before. They're hiding under blankets and under sleeping bags trying to get, keep from getting eat up by mosquitoes, and one of the boys, he peeked out from underneath his sleeping bag, and he saw a lightning bug, and he says, oh no, they're coming after us with flashlights. (laughs) We live in a time where we talk about 
the price of gas and the price of housing and the cost of food at restaurants. And, you know, our housing values have skyrocketed. I don't know if you've noticed that, but many people are sitting on a lot of equity because the value of homes has just skyrocketed. And yet we have to realize that all of that money, if you were to sell your house, you're going to be buying in the same market where what you'd be buying the value of it is skyrocketed as well. So it all looks good on paper, but in the end, all it does is just increase your taxes. I got my tax bill the other day. My house just really went up in value, and so my taxes increased. And, you know, I can remember a time since we've lived here that my house value dropped. And it took them four years to adjust my taxes. But when the price, the value goes up, man, they're right on it. Talk about efficient government. <laughs> you know, things have certainly been better than they are today. But you know what, folks? We're not talking about the price of dove doo-doo yet. You know, I, I, we're not talking about, you know, I, that... Portion. Talk about a gruesome, you know, even a pagan wicked king would rip his clothes and be in sackcloth of ashes when here's two mamas that are talking about what they did to their children just to survive. You know, things aren't as bad sometimes as we think. We're living in a, a generation that's very soft and we're not used to, we've never, this generation hasn't had to deal with anything. And, and I'm talking to the younger generation. Some of you older saints, you've been through some things. You've been through some tough times. I think I mentioned last week, you know, we talk about what, what are we going to have for supper? And there's been generations that would talk about if we're going to have supper. And I'm not, you know, minimizing us. We, we are who we are. And, Our young people growing up, it's like, well, there's not a whole lot we can do about it, but we can at least be thankful and recognize that maybe things aren't as bad as we think they are. I think they're probably going to get worse, but, you know, Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse number 5 says, If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein thou trustest, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? This is prophecy. This is so relevant to us today. People are quitting on God today. Oh, it's just too bad. Why did God allow this? And blame, blame, blame the preacher, blame God, blame the government, blame Trump, blame Pelosi. It doesn't, it's just people are living in a day and age where we've got it made compared to many generations and we just don't even realize it. What are we going to do when things truly get bad? I don't know. It concerns me. My second point is this. Between the rock and the hard place, you'll find God's 911 call center. The psalmist said in Psalm 120, verse number one, in my distress, I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. There was an Australian uh, program back in 2007 a series called May Day. And during this broadcast, it was interrupted by a frightening technical glitch. For six minutes on that show, a haunting audio loop played in the background. It was the sound of a voice repeating over and over and over, Jesus Christ, help us all, Lord. 
Jesus Christ, help us all, Lord. Jesus Christ, help us all, Lord. They investigated it and found that this audio loop was from a news program the previous year about some insurgent soldiers firing on civilians in a foreign country. However, the investigation did not reveal how this audio loop of that desperate prayer happened to interrupt a national broadcast for six minutes a year later. In such a setting, such a prayer would certainly be appropriate. Innocent civilians being fired upon by surgeons, and somehow this audio clip found its way into a national program. They have no idea why. But it demonstrates that when we get desperate, oftentimes then and only then do we call on God. God is amazing, by the way. God is a 911 call center. I've called 911 before, and by the time that anybody responds, I mean, it's like, well, I've already had supper and moved on, and, you know, the suspicious activity next door, it, you know, it was over when I started eating my supper. We all know that, hey, and and listen, I, I know that in this day and age we live in, calling 911, sometimes it works pretty good. Not a perfect system, but... We still should be thankful for that, but it doesn't always work. But God is amazing. No matter how he is slandered, despised, neglected, and rejected, he's still waiting to hear your call. Jehoram, this wicked king, Elisha called him the son of a murderer, and he was. Ahab, is his dad, was a murderer. But you know that even toward the end of Ahab's life, when Elijah pronounced the judgment upon King Ahab. It says that Ahab wept and repented. God said, I'm going to be merciful to you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to rain this judgment down upon you. It's going to happen later. I, I, I read that and, you know, you read how wicked that Ahab was. And in my just humanity, I, I, I always think when I read that, No, he's got it coming. Just ought to tell us how amazing that God is, that no matter how bad you've been, no matter how unworthy that we are, when we get between a rock and a hard place and we call upon him, we can still touch his heart and get an answer, and maybe even get a rescue. Point number three, and really point number three could be a sub-point of point number two. But I made it a point because really it's just two different aspects of the same thing, because really of this message this morning, point number two and point number three are uh, high-priority points, all right? Number three, decisions you need to make are often delayed until you become desperate. I've experienced this in my own life. You've probably experienced it as well. I read in the New Testament that there are only three people that are commended by Jesus for having great faith. One's a Roman officer who begs for the healing of his servant. Another is a woman with a 12-year issue of blood 
whom the Bible would declare as unclean, and yet this unclean woman reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Roman soldier, unclean woman, and then a Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed daughter. And she, you know, Jesus said, it's not me to take the children's bread and to cast them to dogs. And yet, these are the only three that Jesus commends for exemplary great faith. All of these had to cross cultural and religious rules and expectations in order to get to Jesus. All of them were desperate, and all of them received the help that they needed. Sometimes God will put you in a situation that becomes desperate, knowing that that's the only way that you'll take that step of faith and trust Him. In Exodus 14, verse number 10, when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. God led them to camp out between the wilderness and the Red Sea. That's not the best way to go where they were headed. And when the the armies of Pharaoh were bearing down upon them, they were trapped between the armies and the Red Sea, and they had no boats. They cried unto the Lord, and what did God do? God parted the Red Sea, and you know the rest of the story. God led them there in His providence for His purpose, and He accomplished His purpose with Israel, in Israel, and also His purpose upon Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. What a great big God that we have. We find Him between the rock and the hard place, and oftentimes we are not going to call upon Him. We're not going to make the decision that we ought to make until we think or realize that there's no decision. There's nothing else that I can do. I might as well put it all out on the line and do something about it. Point number four, and I'm going to just really gloss through this for sake of time. Sometimes the windows of heaven have to be pried open. I'm sure you've all been in an older home and the old wood windows and the way that they would make the the wood and the glass panes and everything and, you know, 14 coats of paint have been, that window's been painted that many times and over time if that window hasn't been moved up and down, it sticks. And sometimes you have to pry that window open. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that there are windows of heaven And God will pour out His blessings upon you and upon us. Jesus tells the story in Luke chapter number 18 about an unjust judge and a widow that comes to this judge and says, avenge me of my adversaries. And this unjust judge says, you know what? I don't fear God. I don't care about you. I really don't give a rip. But... I know if I don't give you what you want, you're going to drive me nuts. And so he gives in and gives this widow lady exactly what she was asking for. Jesus told that story, not that we would drive God nuts, but sometimes faith means that we don't just take no for an answer, that we don't take God's delay as a no, we persist and we keep knocking. 
We keep asking, and Lord, please, we be faithful. Because right after Jesus tells that story, he says, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? You know, we give up so easy, and we need to understand that sometimes the windows of heaven have to be pried open. Number five, believe it or not, this is my last point. The conclusion is going to take a little bit of time, but... Number five, imperfect somethings are better than perfect nothings. This is paralysis by analysis. Uh, we all know the, the slogan, especially us men, uh, don't strike out looking. I, I played baseball in high school, and I was a slightly above average. I wasn't a great player. I, was, I, I batted good average. I had a good glove, horrible arm. But I had a good glove, and I made a lot of contact, and had a good batting average. It was good enough to get me second team All-State as a designated hitter. Uh, you know, nowadays, designated hitters usually bat cleanup. Well, I was designated hitter because I couldn't pitch because I had a terrible arm. So whoever was pitching, I would rotate and I would play their position. Most of the time I played first base, but if our shortstop was pitching, I'd play shortstop. If our center fielder was pitching, I'd play center fielder because I could sub for them, but there was a guy that could sub at first base. So that's kind of the way it worked. So I had a good batting average, but I can remember one particular game. And forgive me if I I don't remember the details specifically. So that means I can embellish however I want. No, I'm not going to try to embellish it. But I I do remember that it's the bottom of the seventh inning. In high school, you only played seven innings. And it's the bottom of the seventh, and we're playing at home. And I think I got a runner on second base, first base, and uh, two outs. And here I am. I, I I got a full count. Two outs. I mean, we're behind by either one or two runs. All I remember is that I was in that position that every boy dreams of being, that, hey, I got an opportunity to be the hero. And I remember specifically that, hey, I am I am swinging here. And, uh, I mean, I'd already gotten two strikes and missed, and here, here I was. The pitch comes in, and it's just what I'm looking for, and I swing with all of my might. And you know what happens, don't you? You don't. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. I either, here's what happened. I swing with all of my might and barely hit the top of the ball. And it dribbles out between me and the pitcher about six or seven feet. Well, now after that swing, everybody's backing up. And so they get to the ball. I'm running to first base. I think the guys on base is running to third base. And so... They overthrow first base to try to get me out, and so I run to second. The other guy scores and on the error, and we win. <laughs> How's that for hero? You know, there was another time, another story. I'll only bore you with one more of my baseball stories. Another scenario, it's the seventh inning, and literally the bases are loaded, and there's two outs, and I'm up to bat. And... Uh, Man, I, I found that zone, and I connected with about three or four pitches. And our left field, I can see it in my mind. There was a sign right there on the left field 
post there, 310. It was 310 feet to straightaway left field. Normally, I'm not a pull hitter. Usually, I hit out toward the, you know, I spray it around in the center, sometimes go up. I wasn't a pull hitter or a power hitter, but I literally, I pulled four pitches, foul ball. Every single one of them would have cleared the fence. One of them was barely by a foot foul. And I think maybe one or two of them probably went about 370 or 380. I mean, I got a hold of it big time. And then I struck out. And we lost the game. You know what? That's, you know, that's... This is the first time I've told this story ever. Why? Because they're not worth telling. But you know what? I can look back at that. And I'm glad that I struck out swinging instead of nothing worse than just standing there and the pitch comes in and you don't do anything and the umpire goes, strike three! And you just walk off and everybody's going, you didn't even swing. You had no opportunity whatsoever. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about an unjust steward. You know, he told about the unjust judge, but then he tells about the unjust steward who wasn't taking very good care of his Lord's business. And a lot of people owed his Lord some money. And he wasn't doing his job collecting. And he was just in cashing his paychecks and enjoying it. And finally, the Lord says, hey, I'm going to meet with you later on this week, and I want you to give an account. I need to know where all of my accounts are. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And he's thinking about this. I'm getting ready to get fired. He said, I I don't know how to do blue-collar work. I can't go out and dig, and I'm too ashamed to go out and beg I wish there were more people that were like that today. But he's like, what do I do? So he went and he he cooked the books. He said, you know, you owe 100, sit down and write 50. So he's, he's cooking the books. Now, nowhere is the Lord saying that that's okay. But when it was all said and done, he commended... Jesus told about the Lord of this servant commending him because it's like, you know what? At least you did something. Something is better than nothing. And sometimes the some things are imperfect, but they're a whole lot better than perfect nothings. Raymond Barber, a great preacher who studied under J. Frank Norris, said, if you can't do something big for God, then do something little in a big way. It's good advice. Jesus said in John 15, verse number 5, he said, For without me, you can do nothing. You know what that tells me? That means with him, we can do something. And we need to remember that. In conclusion, 1 Kings 22, verse number 34, this is a totally different story, but I love this story. It says, A certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. We've got a battle going on here, and this is the 
Syrian army, and here's a guy, here's a pagan Gentile. This isn't one of God's soldiers. This is the enemy soldiers. But God had pronounced judgment upon the king, and here's just a guy that's got, I, I can see it. He's probably got one arrow left. What do I do with it? All of this commotion. They're fighting swords and there's spears and javelins. Everybody's moving out here on the battlefield and I got one arrow left and I can't seem to get a good shot on anyone. I don't want to risk hitting my own soldier and then feel bad about that. So he thought, well, I'm going to do something. So he, he knocks that arrow, pulls back the string, releases it into the crowd And lo and behold, it finds its way between the joints of the harness. Boom. Right dead center of the king. Like, what do you got to lose? He drew a bow at a venture. I came across this story... In 1987, 12-year-old Aaron Ralston moves with his parents from Indiana to Colorado. He overcame his initial fears and began skiing and climbing. He soon began pushing himself to new limits, climbing his first 14,000-foot peak and serving as a rafting guide. In 1997, Ralston set a goal to become the first person to solo climb each of Colorado's 59 14,000-foot peaks, and his goal was to climb them during the winter. When a planned winter climb was canceled, Ralston took an impromptu trip to go climbing in southern Utah. But because it was kind of a mild climb, not a big deal, he failed to provide a detailed itinerary, itinerary to any of his friends or family. As he hikes alone through the remote Blue John Canyon, he passes over and under several boulders trapped between the canyon walls. When he moves over one such boulder, it falls, and he falls with it. When the boulder settles, his right arm is trapped between the boulder and the canyon wall. Ralston spends the next five days trapped in place. He tried numerous methods to escape, but nothing came close to working. He experimented with makeshift tourniquets and considered using his blade to cut through his arm. But his squeamishness and the impossibility of cutting through bone dissuaded him from continuing. Estimating that a rescue party would arrive on Thursday or Friday at the earliest, Ralston rations his water supply, drinking only a sip or two every few hours. In addition... He began to conserve his urine, which he begins drinking after depleting his water supply on Tuesday morning. Nights are particularly difficult, unable to fully recline or relax or stay warm. As he tires due to sleep deprivation and dehydration, his thinking becomes fragmented and hopelessness sets in. He carved his name and expected death date into the canyon wall. On Thursday morning... Ralston has an idea. Perhaps he can break the bones of his arms against the boulder itself using his body weight. That's exactly what he did. That done, he cuts the remaining tissue of his arm off despite intense pain. Finally free, he shakily proceeds down the canyon, even rappelling down a 65-foot drop. 
obviously with one arm. Several miles further, he encounters a family of hikers. Two of them run for help while the third assists him. A helicopter arrives and carries him to a hospital in Moab, Utah, Moab, Utah, and then he's flown to the hospital in Grand Junction, Colorado, where he undergoes treatment, reunites with friends and family. Ralston makes a significant recovery and even resumes his solo winter climbing project. Despite the pain he endured, Ralston insists that he wouldn't do anything differently, even if he could. The story or the book that was written about this event is entitled Between a Rock and a Hard Place. And it reminds me of these four lepers that are sitting at the gate and they're in desperate condition. We're lepers. They're not going to let us in. Even if we went in, there's no food. And finally, they just figured, why sit we here till we die? We have no good options. Nothing seems to be comfortable Everything is fearful, but why sit we here until we die? Or in other words, what do we got to lose? You might lose an arrow. You might lose an arm. You might even lose your life. But we see in this story that God has a plan and a purpose for all of us. And I can assure you that when God's done with you, then you're done. But until that moment, what do we got to lose? Why sit we here till we die? We might as well get busy serving God and living for Him. Is there any point? in trusting and serving the Lord in these crazy times that we live in? I believe that there is, and this story makes that clear.